Today in the garage, we're delighted to have Jennifer Penman and Dirk Durstein. Jennifer has vigorously defended any and all types of criminal charges in numerous jury and non-jury trials, with charges ranging from murder to manslaughter and sexual assault to trafficking drugs, while Dirk has been counsel in over 40 murder trials, a number of them being very high-profile and complex matters. In 1999, Jennifer and Dirk joined as partners in the firm of Durstein Penman, where they continue to be partners today. Busy as ever, as you can tell, with all the phone calls you can hear throughout the interview. We discussed their practice of trials and jury trials and their different approaches advocating for their clients in the courtroom. Whether you're driving your Ferrari, taking a break from a jam session to watch a little soccer, or prepping a change of venue application, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get to it. both believe strongly that every accused person has the right to a fearless defense and they get that. And anyone who needs a defense uh, gets that type of uh, service when they come to uh, Durstein Penman. So let's let's get on with the interview. I, I want to talk about uh, trials and jury trials. Um, what made you think while you were growing up that you would want to be a trial lawyer or how did you morph into the trial lawyers that you are today? So I grew up with a father and grandfather who were both lawyers. And when I was very little, I used to walk around with a meat tenderizer and I would pretend it was a gavel and I'd say, where were you on the night of and guilty and things like this. And I had judges, lawyers and detectives all confused in my mind. But from a very, very young age, I wanted to be uh, in a courtroom doing law. And uh, the morphing into criminal defense side was as I grew up, I came sort of more to the social justice side and that inevitably leads in my mind to criminal defense so it was a natural joining wanting to be a, um, a courtroom lawyer in criminal defense. How about you Derek? I don't know it was a funny thing I was sort of always thought that uh, law was fascinating and everything and uh, but I was also very interested in acting and I remember I think wondering to myself you know when am I going to pursue a career in acting am I going to pursue a career in criminal law but once I decided on the idea of doing criminal law I, it really incorporated all the things that I really liked about acting and incorporate all sorts of other things as Jennifer said the whole social justice thing there's a character called Rumpel the Bailey who always says that every time he hears a siren he always thinks they're coming for him and that's sort of how I grew up so I was it was never really a real question for me I always wanted to be on this side of the table. So where do you feel more at home? Do you feel more at home in front of the jury or in front of a judge alone trial or does it really matter? It doesn't really matter all that much. I always figure that I've got a I get a kind of an even shot with a jury, right? I mean, there are people, you know, who come with, you know, no particular preconceptions and what have you. Different jurists, I mean, one of the things that's remarkable in criminal law as you go on is that different jurists are different and come to different outcomes. And um, the very worst thing that you can do in a criminal trial is to be up in front of somebody and you know that they're just not going to give you a shot. And that's one of the difficulties that we, uh, that we experience. And I would, in general, be happier being in front of a jury for most cases. And yourself, Jennifer? So I'd say I'd feel most at home just being in court in general as opposed to being at the office. I mean, I completely agree with Dirk in terms of um, uh, when you walk into a jury trial, you've got 12 members of the community there who are going to decide your client's fate as opposed to one judge who you may or may not have heard something about in terms of a, a leaning they may or may not have. So I don't know that I feel more comfortable one way or the other. It depends on the case. It's just being in court in general. The path to get to that trial. It's a long path. You get that phone call and... We all joke that it comes, of course, at 2 o'clock in the morning as opposed to, you know, 3 in the afternoon while you're in your office. But you get that phone call and you, you start a relationship with a client. 
When you first see the disclosure, what formulates in your mind? What do you think about um, so that you can picture in your mind, you know, this might go to trial, and if it goes to trial, this is how I'm going to handle it? So oftentimes it, it may come directly from the client. It may come from a combination of the client and the charges. You know, you're going to do a deep dive into the disclosure. You're going to start looking to see what possible issues there are, there, what defenses there are. And, I mean, for a lot of the serious cases, like if we're talking about homicides, you're almost certainly going to trial because there's nothing to lose uh, by going to trial. So it's a deep dive into the disclosure, looking into um, defenses, and then you just go from there through to your meetings with your client, prelims, and then, you know, way down the road, your trial. And talking about that path, uh, you get the disclosure, you look at it, um, anything that you are looking for in particular? Is there a way that you work through the disclosures? Is there something you start with or, uh, or is there something that you're looking for to allow you to have a roadmap for this case? Um, how do you do it? What's your secret? I don't know that there's a particular secret. I mean, when you first get the disclosure, so for example, you want to find maybe that that summary of the investigation, for example, to give you the broad strokes from the police point of view as to what they are saying happened. So that may come from the ITO, for example, in a search warrant, which tends to set out the entire investigation. Um, I mean, we have a process here in this office where we have disclosure reviews done as soon as we get the disclosure, and that's going through and itemizing and um, providing summaries of absolutely everything in the disclosure. And from that, it leads to obviously what's missing because um, that's the next big piece because you might have uh, certain things that are missing. But one of the big things is because you want to talk to your client. They want to get some advice from you right away. So I want to know the big picture. I want to know what's supposed to have happened according to the police. And once you have that big picture and you're ready, for example, if it's a serious matter, you're ready for the preliminary inquiry, how do you use the preliminary inquiry? Is there any strategy that you'll employ or, 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 or to help uh, you know, win this case at the end of the day? Um, are all preliminary inquiries uh, looked at the same, depending on the type of case? Um, help suppose, me out here. I suppose it depends. It depends on the nature of the charge. Some charges, for example, are one bad man who's saying that you did these things. So one of the things you want to do is you want to set them up for a later cross-examination. I mean, it's nice if the person's going to fall down on their face and refuse to cooperate. That's always the dream scenario. But you have to assume that they're not going to do that for the purpose of a preliminary hearing. And then what you have to do is you have to decide, well, how am I going to set them up for things? There are lots of different schools of thought about how exactly it is you conduct preliminary inquiries in those cases. Some people think that the guy, if the guy isn't going to come back, you should give him your A cross now because if the person doesn't come back, this is your only shot at doing them. More or less, I mean, occasionally if that's the case, if the person's out of custody, a decent flight risk, that may be the case. Most of the time with my guys, they tend to be more in custody and what have you, so you know they're coming back. And I like to do a much more of a setup cross. So I like to push them down in a given direction. If they already said they're in Chicago and I can prove they're in New York, I like to, you know, bring out all the Chicago details so that later on they can never squirm away from it and they look like they're doing those sorts of things. But every case is different. Sometimes you just really need to figure out what the, um, uh, what the frailties of the ID evidence are. Sometimes you don't really see much of a defense and you're just there poking around hoping to find something. So every preliminary inquiry uh, you know, rises and falls on its own merits and your own strategies. You can't really come up with a specific rule, I would say. Your practice uh, involves a number of very serious uh, crimes, so you still have the benefit of uh, the use of the preliminary inquiry. Um, when, you, when, when the preliminary inquiry is over and it's done and you get the transcript, how do you incorporate that into your trial preparation with all the disclosure and the information that you have from your clients so that you can be ready for the puck to drop uh, at that jury trial? 
We, in this office, we do graphs. That's the way we, uh, we often prepare it. So what will happen is that if a person's given three or four statements, we'll, do the, uh, we'll uh, summarize them on, uh, on paper where we break them down according thematically and we show the distinctions between what they've said at various different times. So what they've said at the preliminary inquiry, what they said in their first statement, and what have you. And that provides an excellent tool, a preliminary tool, for deciding how exactly your cross is going to go to show the distinctions and how it is that they're going. So that's, the, I suppose, the, the first thing to do. You know, some areas of the preliminary inquiry don't really give you very much beyond what you had in the statement. Sometimes they veer off into a whole new and exciting direction. So, uh, you know, it depends on how that works. And I know we're not talking about the use of the preliminary inquiry today um, for the purpose of the setup of uh, any pretrial motions. We're really talking about the facts uh, and the meat and potatoes of the case. Uh, when you're preparing for a trial, you have all this information. You have your disclosure, what your client tells you, whatever transcripts uh, that you're able to use. How do you build up your theory for trial? How do you how do you then incorporate a theme? And can you give any, give us any examples of ones uh, that you've used? I mean, every by the end of the preliminary inquiry, at least, and hopefully before, you'll have come up with a, a theme, like something that you're actually going to push. This is this is the way that I'm going to do it. It doesn't necessarily need to be um, uh, an affirmative defense. It doesn't all have to be leading towards, you know, uh, he's guilty of manslaughter, but he never intended to do this. I mean, sometimes it can be, you know, there's just no way of telling. Isn't this all ridiculous, right? But, I mean, to the extent that you're actually putting things forward, you have to be able to bring forward uh, a sort of an unwritten theme. It's often said that every jury trial has an unstated theme that can never be spoken of. And that I, I believe that firmly. So sometimes what you have to do uh, is that you have to show, you have to be pursuing your given agenda, but you can also leave subtly in the air something else which is more than that. So for example, um, I had a case uh, um, outside of Toronto jurisdiction where the, uh, it was a uh, sexual assault of a young girl and uh, the, the father came along and killed the person who had done this. And so we wanted to push the whole question about provocation. And there was a difficulty because there was too much time that had elapsed, right? So we had to sort of bring it all back together. So the, the, the fundamental theme that we were trying to do is he was just provoked and any man would do this. But one of the things that we were also trying to tout is the fact that the other guy was a very bad man. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, you should have no sympathy for this other man. So we were developing that all the way along. And several times I had this recurring um, theme that I would say when I was talking to the thing, she was just a little girl. And it just sort of brought home to everybody. It, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual eventual nature of the things. Theoretically, it, it arose to his state of mind, but in a very real way, it would sort of you know make the jury think, yeah, this guy's a monster. She was just a little girl, and you know I'm not going to help out this monster. So when you would uh, use uh, uh, the theme, she, or part of one of the themes, she's just a little girl. You throw that into some of the questions. For sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah throw it into the questions, and eventually throw it into my jury address. And it was like. When I was young and I was starting out, I couldn't figure out, well, what do they mean by theme? How do you employ it? How do you thread it through the case? And then, you know, it takes some time to realize how, how, how it's done and how you can put it in with an appropriate witness and, and deliver that uh, message to the jury and hopefully they remember it. Uh, are there any other uh, interesting themes that you were able to develop over time? And that's for both you and Jennifer to answer. We'd love to hear it. I mean, I suppose this is just a very, it might be an obvious sort of practical one, but I, I suppose it's helpful for uh, younger counsel is, uh, this was a self-defense case for a client. She was a, a transgender female sex worker, and um, it was a self-defense theme right all, uh, from the get-go. So all of the cross-examinations were um, geared to um, um, how dangerous the other person was, the size of the other person, uh, how uh, distraught she was, for example, when she was... 
uh, arrested and then of course when she testified. So there was lots when we had her testifying as to um, bringing that theme out. And it was, it was an obvious one in some respects, but it was important that it come out right from the very beginning um, for many reasons because the optics in that case as well. And when you say get it out from the beginning, So sometimes you can choose to do an opening uh, in a jury trial and you might want to do that because you want to set that theme out right in the middle of your in your opening so that the jury has some idea that this there's something going on here other than the 25 officers that they're going to hear from right at the beginning and have no idea what the defense perspective is so sometimes you can do an apply to do an opening and you're going to put your theme out right in your opening yeah, there's something to that as a matter of fact the uh, the orthodox rule I think has arisen about the fact that you don't open and generally I don't open but from time to time it can be a powerful thing and I find that in the times that I do want to open so you have to know that you're going to call your client or not call your client or what have you if you're going to be opening but uh, which one doesn't always know but if you can open apply to open just at the end of the crown's case because just at the end not the end of the crown's case at the end of the uh, crown's opening itself because sometimes uh, it will not become apparent to the jury what your defense is and so they're going to hear the Crown's case and you know oh my god he was caught on video doing it well what am I doing here you know I mean I'm just gonna mail this in there's just nothing to be said so sometimes you can apply to open at that juncture so the jury can understand okay we'll look out for this you're gonna hear a lot more of these things you know there's more things lurking in the weeds don't come to a determination yet how about cross-examination during a jury trial um, you indicated that you thought you'd like to be an actor um, is every cross-examination theatrical it is it theatrical in the broadest sense that what you're trying to do with every cross-examination is paint a picture so that you can be theatrical while asking no questions. So a, a witness can be up there for a while and you can just sort of wave your hand dismissively, no questions. And that's theater, right? It's maybe not theater like, you know, Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, but it's theater because you're conveying a message. It's theater when you walk up to your, um, to your accused's uh, water glass and drink out of his water glass because he's just a regular guy. It's theater when you put your... <laughs> <laughs> when you put your hand on his shoulder in the box, right? Because he's just a human being, just like you, right? He's not some sort of monster, right? You know, you can have a quiet theatrical cross. You can have a noisy theatrical cross. It's important that, that, the, um, that every cross-examination be geared for exactly what it is intended to do and that it not all be monochromatic. Any uh, quick comebacks you have for uh, witnesses that may want to become adversarial with you or... Or, or try to get you off your game. I know you go in with a plan and you have your structure of questions, but you, we do find these witnesses. Sometimes they're police, sometimes they're individuals. Um, how do you handle them? I suppose it depends what they have said to me in the first place, but I don't find that problematic for me because I tend to be very argumentative. So I don't know, I shut it down somehow and put it right back on them. I can't think of something, some quippy phrase, that's Dirk's territory. Um, but you just shut them down and, I mean, if need be, the judge ends up stepping in, but I don't typically need that. I find combative witnesses are actually a lot easier to deal with than weepy witnesses, for example. Weepy witnesses are very hard, or totally sympathetic witnesses who are just struggling through are extremely, but, you know, if somebody wants to start, you know, fighting with me, that's fine. You can play it all sorts of different ways, right? You can play it like uh, just they're getting more and more angry, and then you're sort of being soft and gentle, and so they start thinking that this guy's just a big jerk. Uh, or sometimes it's not a bad idea to, to use that to your advantage. If they're losing their temper, you can sort of pick up the tempo, because then what's happening is they're losing losing their brain, right? And things are just flowing out of their mouth. So if you pick up the tempo on that and you start asking them things quicker and quicker, answers will come out that are not in accordance with their preparation. That's why it always frightens me when my client who's on the stand uh, starts losing their temper. And usually I'll try to arrange for something, break my leg, 
push over my water glass, ask for a break, <laughs> something to slow the tempo down. Because, you know, if, if a witness is losing their temper, by and large, they're losing any real shot they have of appearing well in front of the jury for a number of reasons. You, you bring up a great thing uh, about crying in front of a jury. Uh, and I'm not talking about me when, <laughs> when I'm asking questions. I'm talking about when you're asking a question of a witness. And, and it may be, you know, a family member of somebody uh, who is the uh, deceased in, in, in a murder trial. Um, how do you delicately deal with that so that your client can have an even playing field? I mean, I think you have to say outright, I apologize for having to ask you these questions. I know this is very hard because in front of a jury, you don't want to look like an, an asshole. Somebody's died. And, um, you know, you do, you just have to be sensitive and delicate about it. And I think most people are because I think you just hurt yourself. Uh, you just look like a jerk if you're going to be uh, rude to this person who may be, you know, they're just a witness or they've just seen something and they're just there to tell the truth, but they've lost someone close to them. So it's just being sensitive and delicate about it. Yeah, most of the time I try to walk away from them. I mean, unless they say something that I really can't live without. I mean, if you if you think about a continuum about what a witness is saying, right, where at zero they say nothing that hurts you and you don't ask them any questions, and at 10, if their evidence is believed, your client is convicted, right? You've got to figure out where they are. If they're just a three or something like that, you got to ask yourself, you know, even with a hard cross, am I ever going to get around this three or are they gonna, am I just going to, you know, lose points, right? Because I started off minus three. If I start off minus three and then all of a sudden start being mean to this person, I'm now conceptually at minus four, minus five. Better to live with a three, right? And walk away and just say, I've said, you know, I'm sorry for your loss. Sometimes, um, and you know, you see this from time to time, that what will happen is that you believe the truce is three, but that they've embellished because they're angry at your client, so they've pushed it up to a four. Sometimes you still got to figure if you're going to live with the four. You can also do the regretful cross, which can also be very useful in terms of cross-examining, for example, young um, people who are saying that they were sexually assaulted, for example. You know, you know I don't want to have to ask you these questions, but you know, Matilda, it didn't really happen this way, did it? You know, I, I don't want to be mean to you, you know, but I mean, you know, you understand I've got my role and that's fine. But, you know, generally I just try to walk away from people who are overly sympathetic unless there's no way that I can get around it. I think that's an important point, actually, that there's this misconception that when you're, uh, as a defense counsel, you have to ask questions of every witness. And that's just simply not true. And I think it's a hard thing as junior counsel to do to just say no questions. But sometimes there are no questions to ask and don't risk it by starting out asking questions and then getting that answer you just didn't want. I know that uh, early on in my career I saw during a preliminary inquiry and it was safe the question uh, Earl Levy asked a witness and it was a police officer and he said my client was cooperative right? Yes and then sat down and I, I thought that was so powerful I was part of uh, whatever was going on and I, I knew that objective and it, it never it never came to me because I always thought you know I have to be theatrical I gotta beat up every witness I gotta somehow you know be better than them and not realize how you know it's easier to pull them with you instead of trying to push them away and so uh, I, I think some of the things that both of you are saying are excellent any fun crosses during a, a jury trial that are quite memorable I've, I've, I've accused far too many people of being the actual killer. <laughs> it's happened to me a few times, and I wouldn't say it's fun. It's just kind of amazing to me how many times I've done it, and I've had a variety of reactions to that uh, accusation. Um, so I suppose looking back as defense counsel now, it was kind of fun at the time. So I think that was fun. 
Sometimes you have uh, crosses which you barely think you're going to undertake, and then all of a sudden they bear enormous fruit. So I can remember uh, a specific time when I was cross-examining an expert witness who I thought I'd just asked two or three questions of, and they start falling down all over the place. And, you know, everybody sort of assumed that this was like a uh, table leg that would never waver and all of a sudden this table leg was just turning to molasses and you know the, the more questions you ask the more this person fell down absolutely so I remember thinking that wow I mean you know this is just completely on the fly but this person is completely self-destructing and the crowns over there tearing out their hair and there's just nothing to be done there was just nothing to, and it was just completely ex improviso as we say you always know your case inside out and you can jump on things like that when they happen um, how about ethics any true dilemmas that uh, that pop or rear their ugly head during a trial? Um, any things that young lawyers should be worried about uh, during a trial, during cross-examination, or, or during the process of a jury trial? Lots. I mean, there are, there are lots of ethical dilemmas. One of the things that's very much there is that, you know, we're all competitive and we all want to win. And in a very real way, we also want to, you know, defend our clients in a strong way and what have you. And you have to come into it from that point of view. I mean, you have to, you know, the power of the state is really quite significant. You've got to be pulling as hard as you can on the other side of that rope if you want to, you know, achieve any kind of good result. You know, you can't, you can't be mollycoddling the whole thing. You've really got to go forward hard. But then, from time to time, you run to places that you just can't go, right? And that, that, that you know, you, you've, you've taken the, the baton that far, but they want to take you that extra step further. And sometimes it can be kind of seductive because you say to yourself, well, if I take this extra step, you know, I'll actually achieve a fantastic result, you know? Um, but, you know, the whole idea about what, you know, telling a witness essentially what to say, right? So you, you see the witness and you want to ask him, well, what happened on that day? And really what you need him to say is, you know, um, I don't know what, you know, the, the little bird flew up at the last minute, right? But you can't say the little bird flew up at the last minute, didn't they? You know, I mean, it's you know, it's just you can't put that into their mouth. And, you know, the you know, a, a person will say, "Well, I'll go and tell them about the little bird and putting it out there at the last minute." And, you know, don't do that. You know, it's just that's just not the appropriate place. Or a client will say, "What do I have to say so that I get that defense?" You know, and I, you know, the truth, right? I mean, you tell me what the story is, and I'll tell you something else. I know very senior lawyer, for example, who used to tell uh, his client everything about the law and then ask for their, uh, and then ask for how, what the story was. So it was, he was an impaired lawyer and he would say, okay, this is a defense and this is not a defense and this is not a defense and that is a defense, all right? So now tell me what happened. <laughs> and I always thought that was pretty close to the line. I think that is close to the line. Um, the ethics that uh, uh, we're guided by actually help us with a long career and help us uh, rise to the top and bring justice. And uh, I think the two of you are proof of that. Uh, long, successful careers, the reputation, whether it's uh, somebody who is a Crown attorney or defense lawyer, just people just can't stop speaking highly of the two of you. So I, I hope that our audience hears you and for a long career, they understand that ethics are always something that may present itself, but it's something you can deal with. You can always call someone. Um, I want to move on to calling your client. When do you decide to call a client? When do you tell a client not to or not or suggest they shouldn't? And uh, how do you get instructions? Uh, what, are, what are the nuts and bolts of uh, preparing your client to testify or not to testify? Yeah, that's always a tricky one uh, in terms of whether you think it's a good idea for your client to testify. Sometimes it's an obvious uh, 
you know, he, he or she has a good story to tell and it's, it should come across well. And then it's a matter of preparation and, and preparing them for cross-examination. Other cases, it, it's, it's not that it's a, a game day decision. It should never be a game day decision. Um, but it may be something that you are really toying with up until, um, you know, leading into when you're getting to the trial. And then for us, it's sitting them down. Um, we have numerous meetings with the client um, going through a chief, uh, in-chief examination, and then we cross-examine them, and we have other lawyers in our office actually do um, trial-run cross-examinations of, of the accused, uh, of our client. And it's always terrifying when they actually testify. Um, I had a client testify years and years ago on a sex assault, and I, I really, really wanted to sink through the floor partway through the cross-examination. He just bombed it. He was acquitted in the end, which was just shocking, but it was so hard to sit there and watch him being cross-examined because it's out of your hands then, and you know, they might just do well or they might blow it. Anyway, it, it's, it's a tough decision, and ultimately, though, it's the client's decision. We can give them the advice you know, we really think this would help or not, but it's ultimately their decision. It's uh, interesting the words you use, game day decision, because it's absolutely, as you say, not a game, game day decision. In fact, the whole preparation for trial is not a game day decision. It's already done before you enter in that courtroom, including the closing. And uh, what goes through your mind when you're preparing the closing prior to the trial and waiting for everything to fit into it so that you can give that address to the jury at the end of the day? I mean, it's just, it's almost just what you said. I mean, you've got to come up with something that's powerful and uh, you have that theme that you know you're going to be putting through that, that trial, through the cross-examinations, and that's how you're, you're framing your, um, your closing. And then it's inputting the pieces as they come out that the jury's going to have heard in such a way, whether it's thematically or chronologically, however you're going to present it to the jury at the end. Um, but you just want to uh, push that theme through uh, at the very end to wrap it up all together for them. Any secrets that you want to share, Dirk? Well, closing addresses? Yeah. Um, never read uh, and engage with the jury. It's really, it's most important that you actually look forward and engage with the jury. We all have different uh, ways of actually, you know, uh, putting forward what, uh, you know, what we're going to have as written material when we're doing the whole thing. So I like to do it thematically and wander, right? But I, you know, wander away from the script and then come back to the script. It's more like a laundry list of things that I want to tell them rather than something else. But it's the, the most important thing to do is to engage and to, but also make that uh, the continuation of a continuum of relationships that you have built up over the course of the trial, right? So some of the people, for example, some of the members of the jury are, you know, will like your jokes, right? Uh and some of the people will not like your jokes. Some of them are much more serious. Some of them, you know, you, you may get a good feeling with or a bad feeling with. You've got to figure out who are the people who are on my side and build up a funny relationship, a nice relationship with them over the course of several months, right? And then you use that over the course of the whole thing, right? Uh, you also try to remember to a certain extent, at least I do, what exactly is some of these people do, right? So that when you're, when you're dealing with somebody, if somebody's an engineer, for example, you might very well be looking at them during the course of some things. And they may be, you know, really engaged in some of those parts. So those are the parts you're looking at that person. Right, but if it's the more human interest ones, you might look over it here because you know that woman cried during the course of this thing, and you know, uh, uh, so it's it is a continuation of a one-sided conversation, but it's very much a conversation and not just a one-time speech. And uh, we're talking about trials or jury trials in the abstract. Uh, the judge gets involved, and sometimes more so than less. Um, 
if the judge is very uh, deferential and allows you to do your thing during your trial, how important is that and how can you keep that going and how do you deal with judges that always want to put their thumb on the evidence? You know, it's difficult. The, the, the truly interventionist judge is a real chore. You've got to tell yourself several things. First of all, you've got to tell yourself, one of the things is we also do appeals, and I mean, it's very important for the appellate record to make it absolutely clear that you disagree with some of these things and don't do them. And usually what that means, if the person, I mean, if they just do it once, whatever, you can by and large live with it, but if they're persisting on doing something like that, you have to address them out of the view of the jury, even stopping the evidence and say, I'd like to say something in the absence of the jury and say that, you know, these things just aren't okay. Okay, and that you've got to stop them. And it's, that's especially so if the interventions are not necessarily oral. So, for example, I had a trial during the course of which um, quite a senior judge was being um, uh, extremely difficult with, uh, with my client. And every time when he was testifying about things, he would roll his eyes. And one time he flung his pencil up in the air during the course of reply. And I had to stop the thing actually three times and said, just for the record, you know, you rolled your eyes at that point in the evidence and four members of the jury looked up at you. You know, as you were doing that, or you, you flipped your pencil up in the air, you know, and one time it was a difficult decision because uh, he said, oh, no, I never flipped my pencil. And so my co-counsel had to say, well, I saw you flip your pencil. And, you know, that's a sort of a, a situation where you realize all of a sudden that, you know, your judge is now hating you, right? And, I mean, you're putting things on the record that, you know, they're not going to want to deal with. But you have to be relatively strong and you have to decide how you're going to do it. And that's got to be so hard uh, uh, for a young lawyer to do. Um, when you're seasoned and you have experience, um, it's a little easier, but it, it's still tough to do. It's still tough to stand up and say, no, 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 even as you, you indicated, co-counsel or, or other, lawyer, other lawyers in, in the room said, no, no, I actually did see that. Because uh, you'll see that, you know, sometimes the Crown will agree or sometimes the Crown may not be able to agree and other counsel. It's so hard to deal with. So what advice would you give to a young lawyer? Just, you know be strong and realize that this isn't for you and uh, you know this is for your client and it's essential to do that. I mean there's a whole other theme here that we don't have time for about the whole idea about how do you run a trial with a view on appeals with an idea about how you run appeals but that's one of the real reasons for it. You have to preserve the trial fairness not only for now but for the ability to make that argument down the road if you really see that the interventions of the judge are really tanking your client's ability to get a fair trial. That's obviously at the extreme end but we've all seen it happen and uh, you know things like that really need to uh, you really need to lay some foundation for it later on. In the courtroom, the other thing you have to do is you have to realize, you have to make the jury realize that he's just being a total jerk, right? Because he comes vested with all this extraordinary authority and the temptation is for them to say is that if he's interfering with you, you must be doing something wrong, so it's on you. So what you have to do is you have to be sort of, you know, firm and you have to be right. Because if you're firm and you're right and he has to back down, they're going to start seeing that he's just a jerk, right? And you have to gauge the mood of the jury as they're seeing this. Always watch your jury. All the time, watch your jury how are they responding to this if they're responding to his things by rolling his eyes then you know maybe you just give a little small smile and say oh yes your honor you know and then you get a little chuckle off of the jury and the point is made not everyone gets to do 100 jury trials <laughs> so i i, I want to talk about when you're not uh up in front of a jury but you're instead in front of a judge alone whether it's in superior court or if it's in provincial court um on a trial how do things differ? How, what do you employ? How do you uh, act uh, or deliver your message? Uh, is it different in any way? I really don't think it is different other than your audience is now just the judge, not the members of the jury. Uh, you still have to read your audience. You still have to have the devil in the details perspective as to the disclosure. 
Uh, you have to have your theme, you know, preparation organization. It's all the same. It's just you have one uh, audience member that's really uh, your concern in terms of what's ultimately going to happen as opposed to 12. Yeah, there's also, to a certain extent, you may know your judge a lot better than you'd know any jury member, right? So you can tell that this person is the stickler for the rules or leans towards the crown or, you know, is good on reasonable doubt but is bad on motions or, you know, you, you'll have a certain idea of that. So you can tailor yourself to a certain extent for that. I mean, if you're appearing in front of a judge alone and they're stickler for written materials, you give them all their written materials perfectly. You know, if they're not going to read any of your written materials, then don't bust your posterior, you know, getting perfect written materials together, you know, just realize that you're going to actually have to uh, you're, you do everything orally. So, but, you know, sometimes the exact opposite is true. And if you offer to do written submissions, they'll be thrilled. And they're much more likely to, uh, to remember that and to write it down more carefully than if you had not done that. So this law firm here has been a great place for young lawyers to learn and get mentorship and uh, move on for their own careers, and some people stay. A classmate of mine, uh, Stephen White, is here, excellent lawyer. Um, so what message would you send to young lawyers? How did you develop uh, uh, to be a good trial lawyer? What, what can you share as uh, they're about to embark on this long path, and it may seem uh, daunting, but it's, I know it's a wonderful career. Uh, what advice would you give to them? Do lots of trials. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, you really want to get good at trials. It's like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says, right? If you want to get good at something, do it a lot. And there's no substitute for trials. I mean, I did a lot of mooting and everything like that. And it's all great. It's good preparation and everything. But, you know, do trials. And even if they're not, you know, big glamorous trials, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, a Highway Traffic Act trial is, you know, it's got a different outcome than anything else. But, you know, all the various different points of evidence arise. You've still got to convince a jurist. You've got to do all those things. Do lots of trials. That's the, that's the one and only thing. I think that it is the easiest way, if you want to do that sort of thing, to be part of a firm early. And I'm not just touting my own firm. But the reality of it is if you can, it doesn't necessarily have to be with a firm. You could be with another established practitioner or something like that but go with somebody who's got a good supply of work right off the bat because starting to work yourself up on your own thing can be hard in terms of that you're much more likely to have a much more positive early experience with that and I think it's a great form of mentorship to be two to three years with somebody else in a firm or with somebody else uh, you know, getting that sort of idea and having somebody who's responsible for feeding you a fair amount of work and better work than you're probably going to get by yourself uh, and providing a certain amount of real mentorship, which is, uh, I think, an exceptionally important thing and what can be a kind of solitary profession. I thank you for that. Um, any secrets you want to share, Jennifer? No, I completely agree with Dirk about that. I mean, I get into court, you learn something from every single trial that you do. Even if I went and did a fail to comply trial now or an assault, something will happen that will, may have never happened before, and I'll learn from it. I also think, and you can't control this, but it, it may be something that uh, can happen if you're in a, a firm, is to have your first jury trial be factually simple because then you can actually focus on the process and focus on the jury and focus on your opening and closing. And if you've got that, a relatively factually simple trial, then you can, you just have those facts in your head, no problem. And you can just focus on the, uh, what's happening with the jury trial, which is what happened to me. And it was just an excellent experience for my first jury trial. Excellent. So I wanted to thank you both for joining us today. Um, and if anyone doesn't know who Durstein Penniman is, are or is where can they find you where can people find you it's time for you guys to do your own plug oh well they can find us on the internet just uh, google Durstein Penman and you'll find us I mean uh, we're happy to and if anybody has any questions any junior counsel have any questions that arise out of all this we're all both of us happy to answer any questions uh, it's our duty and our pleasure our firm is uh, as you said we 
doing uh, mentoring just by virtue of the firm itself. And I'm also on the mentorship committee and uh, we're always looking for mentees. There's lots of mentors out there and um, we're always happy to work with uh, mentees to help them guide them through the process, particularly the beginning. It's uh, Law school doesn't actually teach you anything about being a criminal lawyer. You need to start practicing and it's really, really advantageous to have a mentor. When I started practicing uh, in the area of criminal law, People told me that the criminal bar is special, and you guys are proof of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sefna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com. Thank you.